Okay, everybody, welcome to Midweek in the City slash FBCSA University. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. There, there may be um, some folks that are at other uh, places across the way at FBCSA University who will come in late. Um, but we will go ahead and <clears throat> get underway here. Um, we, th this is part of a, if you, if you have been tracking, whether you've been tracking FBCSA University or not, of course this is our uh, grown-up version of adult, uh, grown-up version of Vacation Bible School. And so uh, we decided to, since we meet every Wednesday night anyway, we decided to fold in um, FBCSA University, the Wednesday night portion, with Midweek in the City. And um, so here we are. And if, if you have been tracking it, or whether you have or not, uh, this uh, section of FBCSA University uh, is dealing with, or has dealt, dealt with since Monday, or since Sunday, the, uh, what we call the socio-political vision of the Bible, um, which is a fancy way of saying, how does the Bible teach us to live with one another? How does the Bible teach us to live with one another? And that is, a, that is the, the question of our day, I think. Um, how are we going to live with one another? Now, some people might say, well, isn't, I thought the question was, uh, how are we going to get the gospel out to as many people as possible so that as many people as possible uh, can take part in the age to come with Christ? Uh, but that question, uh, how are we going to live together, um, takes in that other question. It does. Because the, the point of the gospel is to live. To live. And the, the Bible says that the way of the Lord uh, is the way we may live. And outside of that way, uh, we will perish. So uh, the question is, how are we going to live together? So live, you can only live according to God's way, but God's way also includes living with others. You know, uh, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so how are we going to live together? And you look around, and even inside the church, um, that, that question begs to be answered. You know, how are we going to live together? Um, a person might look around and see many, many different denominations, uh, each giving the other a black eye, and you would say, how are we going to live together? You see the turmoil in our world, uh, in, in our nation, between ethnic groups, and, you, and between immigrants and um, citizens, and you say, how are we going to live with one another? And you, so the question just rolls on and on. Um, and you know, we might say, well, and, and as I was growing up, I used to sing a song by, uh, we always used to sing this song by Andre Crouch, Jesus is the answer for the world today. And that song brings back good memories. Um, but what does that mean? Uh, that Jesus is the answer. There is, there is rethinking and then acting 
uh, required of us, always, I think. And so uh, we've taken uh, four sections, and, and this by no means is exhaustive, but I've, I've tried to put four categories in here since Sunday. Sunday we dealt with ethnicity, the question of ethnicity, how uh, will we, how, how does the Bible teach us a kind of life that spans um, ethnic differences uh, and, and also acknowledges ethnic differences in a way <clears throat> that uh, adds to the human thriving in, instead of um, dampens it. And then uh, the second night uh, was poverty. Uh, how, what does the Bible teach us about taking care of one another? And uh, we have an obligation to take care of the poor, and the poor have something by which they can take care of us, too. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's both and. It's a little counterintuitive, or a lot, we talked about um, Jesus uh, noticing the the widow, uh, the poor widow, giving her two last coins, and what she had to teach uh, people uh, above her station was the truth about God and the reality of God's nature. That's a pretty big thing, and she was uniquely positioned. Uh, to teach that to us, just as we are people of means are uniquely positioned to use resources to help uh, people beneath their station, as we say. And so to, to take care of one another. Um, and last night we looked at um, the earth and its environs. Uh, what does the Bible teach us about living in the rhythms of the earth that he has created? And um, we started out with um, the mayhem of the destruction of Jerusalem. The writer of First Chronicle or Second Chronicles comments that in, at the end of the section we read that when Jerusalem was destroyed and people were either killed or deported, the land finally healed. Um, so what does that mean? And so uh, the way the Bible phrased it is that the land finally enjoyed uh, its Sabbath rests for 70 years. Um, and the land was taken care of, the wild animals were taken care of. Um, so we, we had quite an interesting discussion uh, last night. Um, if you were in the second um, version of that, uh, then you got in on a conversation about slaughtering hogs, which was not, it didn't go where you thought it, it, you think it might go. It was very interesting. Um, it was very, very interesting, as a matter of fact, and um, somewhat counterintuitive. So, um, but, um, Based on you know those comments, any thoughts from the last three nights that you would like to follow up on? Any thoughts or questions or comments at all? Um, ethnicity, uh, poverty, the earth and its rhythms. Um, I mean, by the way, the the conversation about uh, 
I almost said hottering slogs, but slaughtering hogs. Uh, very interesting um, article um, that, I, I mean, I read part of that article or that transcript of an interview that happened on NPR, and the person who was being interviewed is a woman who wrote a book called Killing It. Um, and she used to be a vegetarian but is now a meat eater um, and learned butchering in France because she wanted to get closer to the sourcing of food. And it has made her um, very aware of what, if you're going to eat meat, she says, you need to know how that happens. Um, because what it will do, what, right now, we're, we're sort of divorced from all of that process, by and large. And we do it on this massive scale. That, and there are many, many, many problems with that. Uh, first of all, we eat too much of it. Uh, secondly, uh, the main reason that that's bad to eat too much of it is because it kills too many animals. And, um, but uh, what happens is you, you scale that back and you, be, you become aware of what it costs uh, that a, a living being you know, gives its life. Somebody uh, brought up hunting as a, as a way of understanding that. And certainly trophy hunting is a problem. But, um, but to, to understand food sourcing, both meat and plant, is huge. And with plants waiting, we, don't, we no longer wait for, for foods to be in season because we can get them anytime we want. And that cuts back then on anticipation and then celebration when that, with others, when that uh, food finally becomes available, that, you know, watermelon or whatever it may be. Um, and the fact that uh, we, we talked about in other cultures uh, outside the West, food is not really about bodily health. Uh, we have scientized it. Uh, one writer calls it nutritionism, that we're really concerned with, you know, all that. Um, instead of celebrating, and it's about uh, enjoyment and family and peacemaking. Um, when it is shared in that way, you eat less because food is not the only thing nourishing you. Does that makes sense. You're gathered and you're eating but you're also taking in and giving friendship. There is a very tangible there's family, there's joy, there's friendship or there is uh, as I said peacemaking there are important weighty matters there that require attention and it's good work and it, it's nourishing to the soul. So um, just a very uh, interesting conversation uh, last night on the rhythms of the earth uh, as laid out in um, the Bible I mean uh, the destruction of Jerusalem happened and the writer thought it pertinent to mention that the land finally had its Sabbath rest well you can't just say that they went into captivity or were killed and Jerusalem was destroyed and and raised to the ground all because they, you know, plucked too many heads of grain. You know, you can't just say that. But what happened to the land was a microcosm of 
how the people lived. And that's always going to be the case. If you become greedy about food, about the land, if you become uh, unconcerned about animals and so, uh, it, it is only going to grow from there. That spirit of unthankfulness and the spirit of efficiency and so forth is going to take over everything. So, um, tonight we will be talking about uh, what the question on the table is what does the Bible teach us about living together with those outside the sexual mainstream? Um, and what does the Bible teach us about life together with those outside the sexual mainstream? Um, and so we will um, begin that in just a moment, but uh, first, let's pray together, okay? We hope, Lord, for a better life. We always hope that. Now, Lord, we in the church believe that we're on to something in leaning towards you and pursuing you and your kind of life. I, I believe that's true, Lord. We often um, stop that pursuit or think we have already obtained something um, when there's much more to learn. And we pray, Lord, that we would always be in that learning posture that we would always be open to revelation from you always keep us humble in that way we pray in Christ's name amen okay to start off uh, tonight um, I'm going to read a passage of scripture that is variously interpreted but um, we will um, read what uh, Christ has to say here. And our Lord says in uh, Matthew 19, or the Matthew uh, tells us that when Jesus had finished teaching uh, at a certain time, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Um, now, we could go, you know, a thousand miles on that, but we're going to steer to this other part here. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, 
it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have become eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Um, now, um, it, it, what I'm just going to pause there just for a moment before we uh, continue, and just let's just we've done this every night, reading a passage of scripture, and then gauging you know thoughts and just seeing what what's going on in the minds of folks in the room. So, what are your thoughts hearing that passage of scripture? And it could be anything, but what, what are what are your thoughts? Beth, male and female. Okay, all right, male and female. All right. Other thoughts. I'm receiving some telepathy signals. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a good one. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, so think more about that. Okay, yeah, got it. All right. Jesus took a little more seriously. Uh, Jesus took divorce a little more seriously. Yeah. He kind of dialed that up. He is God. I sort of like, uh, well, yeah, he has that prerogative. I do like, uh, you know, Moses commanded that a man and Jesus said, well, Moses permitted, and he didn't, he didn't echo their language there. Um, what else? Anything else? Yes, Jim. I think that uh, when he said that's not the way it was in the beginning, he was referring back to Genesis where it was talking about God created man in his own image. Yeah, yeah. Yes, God created man in his own image from the very beginning. And Indeed. That's right. That's right. Um, and there, therefore, you know, if you want to go back to the voices, you can picture God the Father saying, yeah, exactly. The, the the breaking of union. What? That's wow. Absolutely. Other thoughts? Yes. Laura? One word that trips me up is the word unique. I I have a, a vague idea of what that means, but yeah. I don't know I don't know in detail and my idea of what a unique means you wouldn't be born that. Right, right. Yeah. Um, just replace it with the word unique and everything will be fine. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, really. Um, well, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about that just for a second. Um, it, it is... It is, it is unclear. It's, it's batted back and forth. Now, growing up, I, what I understood eunuch to mean, and may, maybe some of you, is, uh, you know, some, some of these medieval choirs needed some, you know, very high sopranos. And so they would castrate uh, boys, and they would remain high sopranos for the rest of their lives, and they were called castrates. Um, 
And I, that's, I remember being in world history in 10th grade, uh, hearing about that. And I think I sat with my legs crossed the entire <laughs> remainder of the semester. Um, I, have you, have you, um, is that your experience? Not crossing your legs, but I mean, hearing that, uh, is that, is that what you have understood about Unix? Or, or, uh, maybe to guard harems, you know, so men wouldn't be so, uh, sexually aggressive, you know, they'd, uh, chop them off and, you know, they'd be, uh, just, um, the only other, um, experience I had with that was, uh, you know, the, the making of steers, you know, on uh, my, my grandfather's ranch. But, um, and I never did that. I just knew that that practice was happening. But um, the word eunuch, there is uh, some evidence that it is a, um, because we, it is used, Jesus uses that word three times here. Um, there are eunuchs uh, born as such. Uh, others are made eunuchs uh, by uh, people. And others have made themselves eunuchs uh, because of the kingdom of heaven. And so there, there is here, Jesus uses it in, to, to cover differing categories of people and really he has um, probably in in this instance he's probably referencing males here but um, the, the underlying uh, sense is that he's re he's referencing um, or he's, he's talking about eunuchs in at least three different senses which is to say that he is talking about people who for one reason or another are outside of what we would <coughs> categorize as the sexual mainstream, um, which is a term that it's a, it, that's sort of a term of necessity. It's, it's not an ideal term. It's, as far as I know, it's my own uh, term. If anybody else is using it, I'm unaware of that. But, uh, I'm using it so that we can understand together, at least in the popular uh, concept, that when the, the prevailing notion is, and, and historic Orthodox Christianity teaches that uh, the sexual mainstream, the, the biblical understanding of that is that a man and a woman would procreate. The popular understanding of sexual mainstream is that uh, cool dudes get all the chicks. Uh, but in both of those instances, there is, there is a heterosexual bent to that. And so um, that's, that's for, you know, for better, which is the biblical notion, and for worse, which is more of a popular notion, that's what uh, I'm using to, that's what I'm terming the sexual mainstream. Um, but Jesus is talking about instances that fall outside of that. That fall outside of that. And he brackets this little um, paragraph here. He brackets that. Did you get that? He said, first of all, his disciples said to him, 
marriage is hard. You know, after Jesus had uh, talked about how easy uh, current some schools of Pharisaical thought were on marriage. You know, you you, you get into it. You know kind of try it and if it becomes sort of this ball and chain you know you you just you know get a, a blowtorch and you know break that chain and, and get out of it. it's easy um, and that was kind of in the air and and Jesus said it doesn't work like that it does not work like that and the disciples said this is stuff we've never thought of and this is kind of scary and there there's a lot involved in that it's kind of hard maybe marriage is not for me you know and then Jesus replied with what he replied he said uh, well let's talk about marriage being not for you and then he bracketed this he said now what I'm about to say uh, is hard to understand and um, not everyone can accept this word, but only to whom it has been given. Now, Jesus was not saying, so you can opt out of this or not, what I'm about to say. That's not what he was saying. Recall the parable of the sower and the seed. Uh, some seed fell on stony ground, and the birds uh, ate it up right immediately. Uh, the stony ground was unable to receive that seed. And so it's not a good thing. It's not sort of like, well, you can decide. You, you can de here's, Jesus is not saying, you know, here's option three and, you know, take it or leave it. He's saying, it, basically, it's another way of saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he says, not everyone can accept what I'm about to say, this word, but only those to whom it has been given. And then he says, there are, there are ways to get out of what you have just termed the difficulty of marriage. And some people have found this to be a necessity, Jesus says. Some people um, are born um, in such a way that they do not find marriage an option. And when Jesus is talking about marriage, well, let me just ask you. When Jesus is talking about marriage, what is he talking about based on all you know of orthodox historical biblical teaching? Is he talking about Obergefell and the Supreme Court decision in 2015? What is he talking about here? Well, but yeah, okay, all right, let's, let's procreation. He's talking about a man and a woman being married. Uh, which would then uh, imply procreation. Um, but he said some are eunuchs because they are born that way. He's saying for, for one reason or another, um, people find themselves without the option to marry. Now, uh, there are many ways we could go there, but that's just the point. There are many ways we could go there. How many, how many reasons? I remember an old episode of Mary Tyler Moore when Lou Grant asked, are you married? And she said, no. And he said, why not? And uh, you know, she said, I don't think that's any of your business. And he said, well, how many reasons could there be? You know? And um, 
and then she said 75. And, <laughs> and then he realized she was answering a previous question about how many words can you type a minute. Um, because she, was, she did not want to answer how many reasons could there be for not marrying. Um, but it, it's the, the, um, the truth is there are many. If somebody, and, and largely we meet as single adults on Wednesday nights, has anybody ever asked you, why aren't you married? Do you want to, do you want, then want to cut that person's head off? Or do you want to make that person a unit? I, I don't know. Uh, the, the, the truth is, uh, you, how do you answer that question? Yeah. You say 75. Uh, no. Um, you, there, there are complicated reasons, everybody. Yes, it is complicated. It is complicated. And, and you don't know often. You don't know. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. Okay? Um, or it could possibly be that you do not find yourself drawn to the opposite sex at all. And you don't find yourself drawn to the same sex at all, and you are what uh, you exhibit signs of what is often called asexuality. That's possible too, um, and it, that is, you know, if you want to shut somebody up, you will just say, "Well, the reason I'm not married is that I'm asexual." You know, uh, no, don't do that. But uh, <laughs> but but it's it, it's true that that unless it's true, yeah. That, that is, uh, and they will never ask you again, uh, but uh, this, this is true, okay? And, and we, why is that? I don't know. I don't know. Um, is it a sin not to marry? Some people, uh, some people would say, well, I feel like sometimes the church thinks it is, you know? Um, but... Is it a sin to be asexual? Um, you know, I mean, come on, everybody. Is that, what are we talking about here? Um, so sometimes a person may find himself or herself just not, there is no interest there. Um, but why Exactly. That, yeah. I mean, that's a reason, too. I haven't found anybody I want to marry. So, I mean, there are, there are 75 reasons. Um, and so maybe a person finds himself or herself really drawn to somebody of his or her own sex. Now, this is where it really, uh, today we get really weird about all of that. Um, and, and this is the heart of, uh, very close to the heart of what we're going to be talking about tonight. But just suffice it to say that some have known from early, early on, or puberty or you know whatever, that, that there is not the same kind of, of um, draw. Uh, towards 
uh, people of the opposite sex. Uh, and I'm just leaving that there right now. A million questions uh, just fired up, but uh, we're, we're just in heads, but we're just leaving it there right now. Others were made that way by men. And we have, of course, the, the Italian, you know, soprano, castrati uh, kind of notion, or the harem, you know. But uh, there are other reasons. Um, there could be sexual trauma that has rendered somebody absolutely um, bereft of uh, the ability to navigate sexually. Um, and uh, so, again, many reasons there. And others have made themselves eunuchs. They have voluntarily renounced marriage, uh, Jesus says, because of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Paul may well have fallen into this category, uh, the apostle. Uh, but guess what? So did the one who was speaking these words, Jesus himself. And uh, as we talked about infamously last week, uh, Jesus himself had genitalia. I mean, he was a man. What did he have that thing for? Well, uh, it was in people who uh, live celibate lives, you might think, well, that's useless equipment except to go to the bathroom. No, it's not. You, and I'm not talking about masturbation either. Uh, it, it's not useless equipment. It is a sign that we're made for union. Marriage is a sign of union, but, it's, but even that's not the end in itself, you see. We are made for union with God and with God's people. And so, even in a celibate person, a voluntarily celibate person, uh, or an involuntarily celibate person, uh, or one who uh, was born uh, and noticed that there's not, there's, marriage is just not going to happen for whatever reason, um, they still bear in their bodies a sign that they're made for non-solitary life, non-isolated life. Our bodies are spiritual in that way. And I'm just telling you right now to use them in a way that says, I answer to no one it's my flesh and blood alone is to transgress your very creation. It's to transgress your own body. So, uh, and, and then Jesus closes the bracket and he says, the one who can accept this should. In other words, he says, 
you ponder this and as soon as the light comes on, you embrace it. You understand this. He's not saying that everybody must live this way. But he's saying, we've got to understand this, people. He brackets this. Uh, first, he says, not everybody can accept it, but only those to whom it is given. And he says, but as soon as you can, you, you embrace it. So he brackets that. Very, very, very important. So, uh, with that all in mind, uh, let me just say that Jesus revealed that those outside the sexual mainstream are, first of all, are noticed by God. Now, let, let me just pause there for just a moment. Um, it is very common for people to believe that either they are not noticed by God, that uh, they will never rise to the level uh, at which he will to at which he will accept them. They're just simply not noticed. They're not really hated by God, but they're just kind of not embraced. They're not noticed. Um, or uh, that God does hate them, and he has ha he hates them by giving them the kind of bodily life that he has given them. Uh, whatever it may be. You know, never marrying for whatever reason, uh, sexual trauma, whatever. Uh, but Jesus revealed that those outside the sexual mainstream are noticed by God. Now, that is the corrective to... Uh, you know, powerful church leader who says, we're going to have a sex sermon week, you know, and we're going to, my wife and I are going to sleep on the roof of our church on a bed. Did you ever, anybody ever see that? We yes. alluded, you know, out up in the Metroplex, uh, they had a bed in, uh, the pastor and his wife, and they were in this bed, and news organizations would come and interview them, you know in bed uh, I think they behaved appropriately you know during the time they were on the roof but who knows uh, when the sun went down I don't know uh, but um, but the point is that this and, and that's that's thank the Lord that you know is kind of a, an extreme example and it was an example from like 15 years ago I think it was something like that 10 or 15 um, the the culture of if you're not married you don't matter uh, would say to a person outside the sexual mainstream for whatever reason oh I get it okay I don't but this this is complete this completely blows that up and Jesus says he reveals that those outside the sexual mainstream are noticed by God and and have a place, secondly, 
have a place among his beloved. Now, that is just... Um, first of all, it would be just like Jesus. And, but, but second, Jesus, lo and behold, will leave out no one. Uh, after all is said and done, he's going to notice you. And he's no, he will notice if you're missing or if you're present. He notices. So with all of that on our minds right now, um, talk for just a moment at tables about, and this is what we normally do at uh, Midweek in the City, uh, what is it, and I'm not necessarily asking for your personal um, you, you know your your personal life uh, definition here uh, of this, but but either you know what do you hear? What's the norm for you know what's the party line and so forth? What is it to be gay? What is it to be gay? Talk about that just for a second, and we'll gather back together in a minute. <laughs> just to leave to like two minutes, but um, this is uh, speed, speed, speed sex talk. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. All right. What, let me ask you this question and just, uh, just answer this question, uh, you know, where you are. What does sexual attraction mean? Sexual attraction. <laughs> sexual attraction. Yeah. Oh, what's that, Sherry? It's a chemical reaction. That sounds like a the basis for a new song. Uh, chemical reaction. Uh, and 
rising to number one this week in the top 40, Chemical Reaction. My, uh, I don't know, My Chemical Romance. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Check that box. Okay. Uh, okay, Chemical Reaction. Sexual Attraction. Arousal. Arousal. Okay. All right. Sexual attraction, nobody said a, an amusement park ride. Sexual attraction, no. Uh, what? Uh, what? It's totally different Totally different between men and women, okay. All right, we have different ways of, of uh, presenting in, in that way. Okay, uh, anybody else? Um, now, let me just say here that I, while I don't disagree with what you've said, um, we are we all have become very close friends with Freud. We really have, y'all. It's all about getting it on. Uh, when we talk about sexual attraction, that's what comes to our minds. Um, it, we've gotten it into our heads that everything is sexual. Um, that's not true, but it is true, but it's not true. It's not true. Um, for instance, what would I say, what would you say to me if I said straight men, and I, I'm not talking about like a comic, you know, in a straight, straight man, but I'm, I'm talking about sexually, uh, straight men do everything that they do in order to convince women to have sex with them. What would you say to that? Some people say true, okay, all right, some people disagree. Um, but the fact that we kind of, you know, have a little fun with that means that maybe there's this undercurrent in which sometimes we do think that's true. Um, but, but that is a really Freudian understanding of reality, that, that sex, and Sigmund Freud did believe, uh, that, or he, he hypothesized that sex really does animate uh, our sexual experiences uh, early on, you know, uh, our first, you know, sort of awakenings of, of sexual experience and so forth, uh, really does animate and inform and, and even taint everything that we do in life. Um, and then only later did people realize he was talking to very wealthy, repressed Victorian people. So I, I don't know, you know, you can fig figure that, factor that in, but um, who lived in Bavaria. Uh, so, but anyway, um, unfortunately, unfortunately, this is one of the reasons this this whole Freudian um, landscape is one of the reasons that dealing with with hashtag Me Too uh, is a nightmare. Now, it's a necessary nightmare because right now it's the only dream we've got in dealing with sexual predation, you know, in the public sphere. But, um, and the power imbalances, really, it's, it's about power imbalance in our day. But it's a nightmare all the same because um, there, there, are, there are aspects of witch hunts to hashtag me too. I mean, there are, you know, there are true, uh, there are true witches in this witch hunt, absolutely. But there are aspects of uh, witch hunts that are, are really not what they appear to be, you know. Um, well, do straight men do everything they do in order to convince women to have sex with them? I would say that this is a very, very 
small-minded way of viewing reality. Um, now, let's talk about this just for a moment. Why is sexual attraction called sexual attraction? Is it because you got to get some? I mean, is that really what we're talking about here? Uh, it, it's called sexual attraction because persons of a certain sex will attract your attention in a consistent manner in a way that persons of the other sex will not. Okay? Um, the predicting characteristic of attraction is the sex of that other person. Uh, so we call it sexual attraction. Now, why is sexual attraction called sexual attraction? What's being attracted? One's genitalia? I mean, just ponder this. Are people's genitalia pulling their bodies towards each other such that their pelvises smash into each other at high speeds from across the room? Is that, I mean, is this like just this magnetic, you know, um, it's called sexual attraction because a substantial amount of your entire self is intrigued by persons of that particular sex. And the attraction often involves far more than, or even altogether other than, uh, any notions of genital activity. Now let's consider here just a moment. Um, Feelings, let, let's, let's talk about feelings and awarenesses and thoughts. Exhilaration. A feeling of exhilaration uh, when, when you are confronted by or, you, or you, you encounter a person of a particular sex. Feelings of exhilaration. Uh, you find that person exhilarating or you find that person fascinating or you find the person beautiful uh, or you find the person mysterious breathtaking stirring of long forgotten thoughts and hopes enlivening thrilling now, none of those words that I've just used are inherently sexual. For friends of Freud, as our society happens to be, that's never far behind in our thoughts. But those words are not inherently sexual. And when we're talking about sexual attraction, <clears throat> we are talking about also those notions that have little inherently, if anything, to do with genitalia. Um, let's, let's go a little uh, in a little more a little more close up here. It, you find someone dear, loyal, tender, safe, intimate. 
None of those words are inherently sexual either, although we put sexual spins on those in our way of thinking often. Uh, you find that person accepting. You find that person enlightening, ennobling. All of these, all of these words are involved in sexual attraction. Now you could say, well, they're involved in friendship too, but not in the same way, or at least not in, uh, when, they're, when these kinds of words are involved in uh, a consistent pattern of a certain sex uh, inviting you to experience these thoughts and feelings, uh, then, then that is a consistent pattern of sexual attraction. And it does not mean, it does not mean that you are ready to go to bed with that person. What it means is that there's a sexual attraction there, and when uh, in its in that pure form or in that uh, in the just abstract form, those feelings are not sinful because they do not involve impure desire. Now, we the the heart is deceitful above all. Who can understand it? The prophet Jeremiah says. And we can convince ourselves of anything. And we can say, I'm just around that person or persons because I find them interesting. Or I, I feel alive. When, as a matter of fact, we long ago crossed the line to I feel sexually uh, willing. And I have a desire to sexually consummate. Um, now, let me just say that taking Jesus' thought uh, and, and his thought about he notices those outside of the sexual mainstream, there are many reasons. It's very complicated. Um, it would then make sense to say if a person has feelings for this, a person in the same sex, uh, exhilarating, fascinating, beautiful, mysterious, breathtaking, stirring, enlivening, thrilling, dear, loyal, tender, safe, intimate, accepting, enlightening, ennobling, those kinds of feelings manifest that in and of itself is simply a pattern. It is not lustful desire. Um, it is lustful desire, straight or gay, uh, which takes us into deep, deep waters. Um, now, let's pause right there, just a moment. There's a certain strain of thought and a strain of teaching in the evangelical church today that does two things. It says, love the sinner, hate the sin. Okay? The problem is that this begs the question big time. And the question that is begged is this. How will we know where the sinner ends and the sin begins? 
Listen, we think because often, not, I, this is, I don't want to scold. I, I'm, we're all in this together. I'm, I'm, but, but hear this. It is very easy to think that because we have entered into a discipling life with Jesus Christ and into a, a life of faith with others, that we have all of a sudden become um, anthropologists and that we know people inside and out and we know their motives and we know what makes them tick and we know... A little caution here, please. We can get to believing that we, when we say something as facile as love the sinner, hate the sin, which is found where? Where is that verse? Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's in the Apocrypha. Uh, no, it's really not. It's nowhere. Um, it's nowhere. Uh, it, we, we, when, it's, when we say something as facile as that, then we can say, I, I know how to separate those things. <clears throat> well, how do you separate somebody from feeling ennobled? By a person of his own sex or her own sex consistently. Uh, and, and how do you separate a person from the admiration of beauty? Uh, or for that matter, in uh, the opposite sex. I mean, either way. Um, how do you know where that crosses a line? Now, we say, well, I know sin when I see it. Look in the mirror and say that tomorrow morning to yourself. I know sin when I see it, and therefore I don't need anybody to tell me because I will police myself. Um, so, Let's just be real careful there, okay? Um, love the sinner and hate the sin. And so we don't know where one ends and the other begins often. And this is one of the most gigantic, faulty assumptions that we do know this. We do know where that line is. All we need to do is separate that and that and you're good to go. Um, because we don't know where that line is, then what we really say is... Love the sinner, hate the sinner. That's what we that's what we say. Love the, do you love me or hate me? You know, and we, we engender confusion there because we we say we love the person and then we run roughshod over what we think that person's problems are. And we do this all the time. And this is not just sexually, but we do this all the time. And so and so we have the tender words of Jesus in John 8. Who, Jesus, who is faced with this opportunity that would seem crystal clear of dealing with a woman caught in adultery. And often we tell the story like the you know, Jesus really sticks it to the Pharisees. They're, you know, they're all ready to stone her and he sticks it to them. And then he's so, you know, soft and gentle with this woman caught in adultery. But what he says to her is, 
You remember what he says? Go and sin, go and sin no more. Okay, that's one of the most powerful statements ever uttered by God. Because it listen to what listen to what happens here. It, it's it's powerful because of what Jesus doesn't do. He he doesn't micromanage a wounded human life. What? He doesn't say, you know, these men that tend to come along in your life, you know, let's, these are, they just want one thing. And so, you know, you've kind of got this label as a home record. Let me tell you how to, you know, get out of that. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, go and sin no more. And what he, what he lets speak to her is the fact that he's noticed her and she matters to him. And he wouldn't let anybody else hurt her. Beyond that, he does not micromanage a wounded human heart. She was... The trauma would be off the charts there. And she had crossed some lines. And so there's... There is uninvited sexual pain and there is willful sexual misconduct. And Jesus just backs people off and he says live right. And that's all he does. Um, look, for all this teaching, for all this teaching that says gays can sit in our pews and we won't kick them out, but, but they've got to keep trying to pray the gay away, praying to change their attractions. For all the teaching that espouses that line, we must understand something. Gay people in the church have come to this point of the present having spent years crying, pleading, crawling alone through the broken glass of fear and self-hatred, screaming at God to change their ugly, unlovable selves. They have already tried to pray the gay away, everybody. Because the church said, that's the broken glass you've got to crawl over. And they're still gay. And we would dare look a person in the eye and say, are you praying for change? Has it happened yet? How about now? How about now? Like that old SpongeBob cartoon. How about now? How about now? Um, 
seven years, seven years, according to a book just out in April, passes between realization of a person, a person's realization that he or she is outside of the sexual mainstream, and disclosure to someone in the church. Seven years on average. Now, that seven years, what happens in that seven years? A lot of loneliness, secrets, pretending, white-knuckling, looking over shoulders. I mean, you name it. So the first thing that this line of teaching says is um, love the sinner, hate the sin. The second thing that this strain of teaching says is get married and all your troubles will go away. And if they don't, you, you can get a divorce and marry somebody else. Which is also the scandal of the church. Um, I, I I have a friend who um, was told she was told she was struggling with these realizations that she was outside of the sexual mainstream years ago, and she she went to a counselor and she was told by the counselor. You get yourself married, and you have yourself some sex, and all that will go away. Wish I could track that counselor down. I would personally bring a paper shredder and shred his license. Maybe he would become a eunuch. I don't know. But anyway, um, the, the, I'm kidding. We'll edit that out. Um, the, the truth is that... Uh, we need the voice of those outside of the sexual mainstream to counter these unbiblical claims. Is gay sex wrong? Yes. But not because it's gay sex. Not because it's defined as different. It's wrong because it's not ordered toward procreation. You know what that means? It means that most of what passes for sex, gay or straight, in the Western world, and a lot of what passes for sex in the church, is wrong. Because it's trying to separate procreation from pleasure and intimacy. And this is this is truly part of a larger conversation but we have we have become very good at separating those two things procreation from sex uh, and again I've said this a million times to the midweek in the city crowd but you can go on amazon.com and you can read a lot you can find it hundreds of books written by you know published by evangelical publishing houses on how to have mind-blowing sex in your marriage 
we received a um, book when we were <laughs> uh, when we were going to get married called Intended for Pleasure. It sounds kind of cringy, I know, but anyway, it intended for pleasure. It, it didn't. Why didn't it say intended for children and undergirded by pleasure and intimacy in order to provide a solid, stable home? Why? Because the book cover wasn't wide enough to fit all that on there. So they just said intended for pleasure. But see, that's the point. It, it, it's just separated out from that. And and it's not ordered toward that in many of our minds. And this is, as Jesus said, it, you know, to use a phrase that he used, it, it was not that way from the beginning. If, if you can name uh, one thing, and this is not for us to answer because we'll get into a debate, but if you can name one thing that the pill has brought us that... Uh, outweighs all of where we've gotten to with sex today. Then I would I mean that I would challenge you that outweighs you know all of what has come about in the world of sex since that time. Then uh, you know that would be that'd be an interesting conversation. Um, Sex has become a remedy for needs instead of a self-giving. Our bodies are not our own. And what we've said is they are, and even the church often preaches to people, um, this is why you've got to get married because you, you need this kind of expression in your life. And if you, to the end, to the extent that you do not have it, you're not a complete person, and you're always white knuckling it through life. You know why we say that? Because we have not offered a compelling vision of living outside of the sexual mainstream. We have not offered a compelling vision of what celibacy can be, and the picture of our bodies that signify union. That's larger than any sex we could ever have. Um, this, is, this is imperfect, much of, if not most, uh, except the scripture that I have read, of what I've said has been completely imperfect and full of flaws. And I'm grappling with these kinds of things too. But I will tell you that our church I will, I will not tell you, I'll ask you, how long will we um, be comfortable with people living outside the sexual mainstream in our church in silence? How long? In isolation. Um, but again, this is, this is an ongoing conversation. We will have more conversation. In fact, next week uh, we will continue some, we call it ABW, Ask Brian, whatever. We will continue that next week. But then the week after that, uh, we're going to uh, have a dialogue with a friend of mine who's 
never had this kind of dialogue before about his own um, coming to terms with uh, his being outside of the sexual mainstream. Um, and, you know, you're invited to, everybody's invited to all that. But I would give you a, a resource that I have found very helpful of Christians, and hear me clearly, uh, Christians that hold to the historic biblical orthodox understanding of sexual expression. Straight down the line. But who are themselves gay or lesbian living celibate lives because of their obedience to the scriptures in this way. Um, it's a blog in which many thoughtful writers uh, post every day. Spiritualfriendship.org Spiritualfriendship.org uh, One of those blog writers has been our guest several times. His name is Ron Belgal. Actually, another writer has been our guest too. Her name is uh, Johanna, oh good heavens, can't, I'm blanking on her last name, but anyway, uh, but there are many, many thoughtful writers there, spiritualfriendship.org. Um, if you want to talk further about this, I'll be here if you want to engage in dialogue uh, for a little while. Other than that, uh, how we normally close this time is we pray for one another around tables. And so I think that would be appropriate tonight. So let's do that. I'll be around if you want to, uh, if you want to talk further. Okay, thanks everybody.